You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of creation messages that John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Now, here is John Whitcomb Jr. on Today in the Word radio. We invite you to turn with us to Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, as we read God's account of the creation of the first living things on this earth. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. God's account of the creation of life is in profound contrast to human speculation on this vastly important subject. Because in the very nature of the case, you see, the unaided human mind groping for answers to these great questions must interpret the past history of the earth, even its origin, in terms of the things that men can see today, present processes in the world of nature. This is what we call the uniformity principle of science, namely that nature basically has continued as it is today, even from all eternity. And modern scientific theory, in the very nature of the case, must exclude the idea of miracles or the supernatural from its horizon of thinking. This, of course, is clearly delineated in the word of God when it tells us that only the believer, only one who has had a vital personal relationship to Jesus Christ, can understand how God operates in this world and how he began the world. And this we understand by faith, according to Hebrews 11.3. Now, the book of Genesis, in its description of the creation of living things, differs in at least five ways from the theory of evolution. And I trust that these thoughts will be a help to us in seeing why it is that man, even in his brilliance and in his great achievements, as God has permitted him to make amazing discoveries in the natural world, is really quite incapable of coming to grips with supernaturalism, with the acts of a God who is not limited to natural processes as we see them today. The book of Genesis tells us in the first place that living things appeared in a very different order than that which we might expect, naturally speaking. Instead of life beginning in the ancient oceans, they began, life began on the continents in the form of all varieties of vegetable plant life, including fruit trees. In the second place, The book of Genesis tells us that God's method of bringing these living things into existence was entirely different than the method that he employs today in what we call the uniform, natural processes of growth and life. Let me call to your attention again this 11th verse in chapter 1 of Genesis. Notice what the scripture tells us. God said, let the earth bring forth the grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit 
after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. Now, being uniformitarians at heart, and really, I might say, and I trust this will not disturb you, all of us naturally are evolutionary in our thinking. We have no other way to interpret this world apart from the word of God. And as we read this verse, even as Christians, we tend to read it that way, don't we? We think somehow that uh, this means that God commanded the earth to bring forth perhaps a tiny speck of life, which gradually through the years grew and finally developed into fruit trees that ultimately bore fruit. This is the way we naturally read this verse. Let the earth bring forth fruit trees. I would suggest, however, that this is probably not at all what God intends to tell us. I believe the verse means that God commanded the earth suddenly to bring forth full-grown fruit trees already bearing fruit with seeds within them capable of reproducing after their kind. How do we know that this is what this verse is really saying? Because every other passage in the Bible that talks about God's methods of creating living things indicates that this is the way he did things. For example, when God commanded the earth to bring forth the first human body, how did God accomplish this? What was the manner of the creation of the first human being? Certainly not a tiny embryo or a tiny baby which through the years had to grow to maturity before God could actually begin human history, God commanded the earth to bring forth a full-grown human body into which he breathed the breath of life. And the first man stood up, opened his eyes, and spoke to God as an adult, one who had never been a child, who had never had a mother or father one who had, as it were, a superficial appearance of age, so that if you had stepped into the Garden of Eden a few hours after Adam had been created and had spoken to this man and asked him how old he was, his answer would be, I'm two or three hours old. And certainly, as a uniformitarian, you would have said, this is ridiculous. I want to be serious now. How old are you, really? 30 or 35? And, of course, his answer would have to be, well, I'm sorry, but you don't know the amazing story of my life. I never had a mother or father. I was never born. I never grew. I was never a boy. God created me as an adult. Now, when we stop to think about this, profound and amazing though this miracle may be to our natural way of thinking, it is the only possible way apart from a multiplication of additional miracles, that God could have started the life process of any kind of living thing. Why? Because if God had created Adam as a baby, for a number of years, God would have to have cared for that baby, feeding it, watching it, guarding it, protecting it, and raising that child supernaturally an hour-by-hour, day-by-day series of miracles for years. God doesn't do things this way. According to the principle of the economy of miracle, 
God accomplishes his work in the most efficient way possible. And I would submit to you that that would be an inefficient way to launch human history. You say, well, God could have created a mother to take care of the baby. <laughs> yes, but where would the mother have come from? You see, you have to begin somewhere. If the Bible is true when it tells us that God created living things after their kind. After their kind. What a tremendous expression this is. It is absolutely saturated with supernaturalism. When God launched human history, he began with an adult. And I would submit to you that when he began fruit tree history, he began, began with full-grown adult organisms already functioning according to their God-intended purpose. And the same principle may be applied to the creation of all the animals, all the marine creatures, the flying creatures, the land animals as well. The creation of adult organisms. I believe that this doctrine is confirmed by the teachings of the New Testament. The Gospel of John tells us in the very first chapter, in the first three verses, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the creator of this world. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, it was Jesus Christ who said to the earth, bring forth fruit trees bearing fruit. Now, how did Jesus Christ operate in the realm of miracle when he visited our planet 1,900 years ago? The second chapter of John tells us. When Jesus was invited to a wedding feast at Cana on one occasion, along with Mary and some of the disciples, he found a very embarrassing situation uh, facing the host and hostess. After the uh, wedding ceremonies had only begun, the refreshments were all gone. And only those of you who have endured such an experience can imagine what embarrassment it can bring. And so the Lord Jesus chose this uh, humble setting to perform one of the greatest miracles recorded in the Word of God. He commanded great water pots to be brought into the feast, six of them, containing two or three firkins apiece. That means 150 gallons of water. You see, wedding feasts lasted a whole week in Bible times, and vast multitudes of people would come. 150 gallons of water. And as the men staggered under the weight of these huge stone pots and brought them into the feast at the command of Jesus, he spoke the Creator's word, and the wine appeared out of water, instantly. Now, what is wine? It's an end product with an appearance of age, highly complex, that cannot be produced in any other way known to man than by the long, drawn-out process of planting vines in the ground and watering them and waiting for the sun to draw that water up through the vines and into the branches and into the fruit where the juice gradually is formed. And finally, when those grapes are ripe, they are picked, the juice is squeezed out, allowed to settle, and then and then only is grape juice or wine 
available for men. Now you see, modern science in all its ingenuity has never even dreamed of the possibility of producing things like this without going through all the processes that God has ordained for nature. There's no shortcut. There's no magic formula available. But the Lord Jesus decided not to do all these things. He didn't want to plant any vineyards or pick any grapes or squeeze the juice. He just said, let's have the water. That's all. Just the water. And he said to that water, in effect, bring forth wine. Now. Right now. And there it was. Now, when the ruler of the feast tasted this wine, not knowing where it had come from, he said to Jesus, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. You've kept it somewhere. Now, where have you kept it? Where has it been kept in storage? I've never tasted any wine quite as good as this. Whose vineyards did it come from? Who picked these grapes? You have kept it somewhere until now. Now, this was a normal reaction, wasn't it? I'm sure that uh, in his intellectual horizon, he had no other alternative than to suggest that it had gone through the normal processes that all wine must go through and that it had been stored somewhere. It had been kept somewhere until that moment. Did you know that this is the conclusion to which all modern scientists have come apart from the revelation of Scripture concerning the amazingly complex universe in which we live? When man today seeks for an answer to that burning question that God has placed in his heart, namely, where did this all come from? Why are we here? The natural answer when we look at this universe of stars and sun and moon and planets and this earth with its atmosphere, its oceans, its continents, its amazing complexity of plants, all the animals, and man himself. The one basic question as to where it came from receives an almost unanimous answer. It has all been kept somewhere until now, passing through vast, complex processes through time from simple to complex. You see, this ruler of the feast, in a sense, was an evolutionist. He was excluding the supernatural. He never even dreamed of the possibility of miracle. It never dawned on him that there was anyone in this world who could create an end product with an appearance of age that it didn't have. He said it's been kept somewhere. But I would like to say to you this morning that there's another group of people who have a different answer to this basic question, just like those servants who drew the water and knew where that wine came from. They knew it had never been in any vines or grapes. So Christians today who personally know Jesus Christ have a different approach to this question of where the world came from. And the Bible tells us that it has not evolved through vast periods of time from simple forms to complex that living things have not evolved from tiny organisms to the complexity of our living world today, but that Jesus Christ spoke some words and things appeared instantly. Obviously, such a doctrine 
cuts across the grain of all modern evolutionary thinking and therefore receives, as might be expected, an absolutely violent negative reaction. And well might it, because as 1 Corinthians 2.14 reminds us, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural mind. He cannot know them. Why? They are spiritually discerned. And may I submit to you this morning that every great public miracle Jesus performed on earth was exactly this kind of miracle. When he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, what happened? He produced a situation on that sea which, if you hadn't known an hour before what the situation was, you would never have guessed that the history of that sea had been two hours before a raging storm. He created a situation that had an appearance of a different history than it really had. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, what happened? If you had walked into Bethany an hour after the resurrection of Lazarus, not knowing what had happened, and had talked to this gentleman, you would never believe that an hour before he was decomposing in a tomb. Jesus created within him a history of previous uninterrupted life. And when he touched the bodies of sick and crippled people, he gave them an appearance of health, eradicating the history of sickness in a moment of time. Why? Because this is God's supreme way to demonstrate that he is above natural processes. Jesus Christ is not subject to the situations of this world that we are acquainted with. He is God. And do you notice how the Gospel of John chapter 2 emphasizes this point? This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his what? His glory. His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of the Creator God who reserves to himself the power to do things that men can't do. And I recognize this morning that when we approach the book of Genesis on these terms, we're in a totally different world of reality. And I would like to remind you that though this may be an uncomfortable world for many people who don't know this God, that it's the kind of a world in which God operates to accomplish things that no man could ever dream possible, and yet which would be necessary for saving the kind of people that need to be saved from sin. It's only a miracle-working God, dear friends, that can speak light into a darkened soul and to redeem a hopeless sinner from the power of his own sin and from Satan. And I'm happy to say this morning that the Lord Jesus, who created the world by miracle, is able to perform this kind of miracle today when he redeems those who are desperate in their darkness and in their sins. There's another area, however, beside the matter of the origin of things by miracle and the order of events that contradicts present-day evolutionary theory. And that has to do with the number and variety of creatures at the beginning of the world. 
Now, you see, the theory of evolution tells us there was no variety at all to start with. Just one single solitary speck of life in the oceans. Why just one? Because it's hard enough for evolution to explain how one got started without multiplying their problems. But you see, God doesn't have that problem. And that's why when you turn to Genesis 1.20, you see a very different idea than that conveyed by evolutionists. Namely, when God commanded the waters to bring forth living things, he commanded them to do so abundantly. The moving creature that hath life, the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Now notice in verse 21 a slight contrast to the single speck of life idea. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Now the impression I get from this passage is that God created all the different kinds of living things in the oceans, the largest to the smallest, all together at once. You say, well, this is, this is too much to, to grasp. You mean to say that God created great whales all at once? Yes. In fact, what other idea is available? for the origin of whales. You know, evolutionists have been very embarrassed by this problem. Whales certainly couldn't have evolved from fishes because they're mammals. They're air-breathing creatures that uh, give birth to their young alive and suckle them on milk. In fact, baby whales gain 200 pounds a day on mama's milk. They're definitely mammals, right? Now, where did these monsters come from? That's the question. And the evolutionist, struggling for an answer, has come up with a theory somewhat like this. After hundreds of millions of years in which fishes somehow developed legs and moved out upon the shores of the continents, and then moved across the continents and changed their whole structure and system into that of mammals, some mammals, perhaps uh, uh, pig-like creatures that roam the continents decided to go back to the oceans and evolved their legs off again, shifted their breathing apparatus to the tops of their heads and became the greatest animals that have ever lived, namely whales. Now, dear friends, where is the evidence for this type of dream? There aren't any fossil missing links between four-legged pigs and whales. There isn't any genetic possibility for this kind of transformation of living things. The fact of the matter is, it's a desperately absurd theory. I find it much simpler to read Genesis 1.21, and God created great whales. That solves a great number of problems. You say, but they're so big. Well, read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the, the emphasis of this chapter is that God is great, infinite, and whales offered no challenge to God at all. But dear friend, if you're an evolutionist this morning, or if you have been deeply influenced by these theories, 
I would like to say that you cannot invoke God's power to get you out of your problems. You go all the way with evolution or come to terms with God's account. There's no harmony possible between Genesis and evolution. Think of all the fantastic variety of living things that God created in the oceans. Why, even today, in our zo zoologically impoverished world, already having lost tens of thousands of different kinds of animals through the struggle of existence, through the history of the world since the Edenic curse, and especially through such great catastrophes as the flood, we still have left in the world 18,000 different kinds of fishes and 88,000 different kinds of mollusks in the oceans. Those are marine creatures that don't have backbones and that uh, sort of like the octopus and the squid and so on. And 800,000 different kinds of joint-legged creatures like uh, crabs and lobsters and so forth that crawl on the ocean bottoms and the shores of the, of the earth. A million different kinds of marine creatures. And new kinds are being discovered every year. And the book of Genesis says that when God commanded the waters to bring forth living things, all kinds of marine creatures that have ever lived all came into existence at once. And there have been fewer and fewer kinds ever since. Not fewer and fewer marine creatures, but fewer kinds of them, as many have become extinct. God has not created any new kinds, you see, since the end of creation week. But the theory of evolution demands that there was only one kind to start with, and there have been more and more ever since. Now, someone's wrong. You can't harmonize the creation account of Genesis with this theory. There's a fourth area in which Genesis contradicts evolution, and this perhaps comes to the real heart of the problem. What are the limits for the possibility of variation within the basic types of living things? How much change can take place through time in basic types of living things? Well, of course, the theory of evolution says there are no limits because, as a matter of fact, every variety of thing, living thing in the world today was once entirely different than it is now. Have you heard of the family tree idea of evolution? Have you ever looked back on your family tree as an evolutionist? You'd be amazed at how different you looked a million years ago. Now, we're not talking about uh, your family tree back to the Mayflower, but tens, hundreds of millions of years ago. And you will discover that your ultimate ancestor, according to this theory, was an infinitesimal speck, visible only through a microscope, floating in ancient oceans. Did you know that this view is taught as dogmatic truth in every institution of higher learning in the world where any advanced degree in science is offered? It's impossible for a Christian to get a master's degree or a doctor's degree in any science anywhere in the world where this concept is not held. This is what we face today in a world that is completely dominated by a non-biblical philosophy of origins. 
But I would like to submit to you this morning this idea. Genesis denies the family tree and instead of this teaches a forest of trees in which every distinct kind of living thing, man, cat, horse, dog, elephant, giraffe, and so on, hundreds of thousands of different, each one has its own special tree. Now, why do I say tree? Because God created within the genetic complexity of the first living things a vast potentiality for variation. Now, this can be confusing in the debate with evolutionists because here is a most obvious fact that since Adam and Eve were created, the genetic potentiality for variation has worked itself out in many different races of men. Pygmies, giants, like the ones that were killed by David and his armies a thousand years before Christ, men who were nine feet tall, different uh, skin color, different features, all of these potentialities that are worked out according to known genetic principles, mainly through uh, isolation of uh, small intermarrying groups that have dispersed since the Tower of Babel after the flood and even before the flood. But men are men, and there's no question about it. Anyone with eyes in his head can see the difference between a man, no matter what race he belongs to, and an animal. No question about it. And the most savage, degraded pygmy in the jungles of Africa is completely capable of accepting Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and understanding the word of God and attaining skill in almost any area of modern civilization, given opportunity. You know, evolutionists have tried to blur the distinction between man and the beast by saying that degraded human beings are not far removed from uh, the highest of the animals. And uh, even Charles Darwin, a hundred years ago, very seriously proposed that there were a group of human beings living in the southern tip of Argentina who were subhuman until a missionary went there a few years later and won these people to Jesus and their civilization was transformed. And when Darwin visited the place or heard about it later, he wrote a letter of apology and explained that he had utterly misinterpreted the situation. What these people needed was Jesus. And then on the other side of the ledger, uh, many evolutionists have tried to show that animals really are potential people. And some of them have uh, <clears throat> enclosed themselves in cages in the jungles of the Amazon with tape recorders listening to the chatter of monkeys in order to dis decipher their language show that given enough time, monkeys can uh, speak as intelligently, perhaps, as people do. Now, dear friends, uh, this is a very silly way to spend your time. Because the Bible says that human beings are absolutely unique. Only man has the image of God within him. And through all eternity, you will never see an animal bowing his knee and giving thanks to God. You'll never hear an animal talking to a man or to another animal. 
Adam discovered this point on day one of his human existence when he named the animals, which means that he discovered their basic characteristics, and he found that there was not one of them capable of being a companion to him. None of them had the image of God imprinted on their faces. None of them gave an answering response to his voice. Not one of them was a person with all of the intricate, infinite complexities of this God-created attribute which enables us to have fellowship with one another and with our God. Yes, men may differ in outward appearances, but men all belong to one kind, mankind. And there are various varieties of dogs, perhaps 200 of them, Great Danes, Dachshunds, Poodles, and so forth. But they're all members of one kind. And through all eternity, in spite of all the variations, no dog will ever evolve into a cat. Many varieties of cats, but they'll never become dogs. God has set lines of demarcation that will never be blurred or broken down. And of course, true science is in absolute harmony with the book of Genesis on this vital point. The very year that Darwin published his Great Origin of Species, another scientist over in Austria was discovering some of the basic principles of genetics, Gregor Mendel, which uh, lay uh, buried and unrecognized for a whole generation, in which he pointed out that whatever variations may occur in living things, they can occur only within, absolute, within an absolutely fixed limit and that basic types of things remain unchanged through time. Now this, of course, spells out our doom to the theory of evolution. And in spite of desperate efforts on the part of uh, experimenters to transform, uh, for example, tiny fruit flies into other kinds of insects through uh, radiation experiments for many years. Uh, fruit flies are still fruit flies. They've been able to produce some freak ones that could never survive in nature anyway, but even the freak ones are still freak fruit flies. Now this is tremendously important from a biblical standpoint because we can, if we can put it this way, these tiny creatures not knowing what kind of experiments are being performed on them by men and for what purposes, look up into the face of the experimenter and say, you can't change me. God made me to reproduce after my kind, and you can't change me. You never will. God created living things to reproduce after their kind. This is so important that God says this ten different times in the first chapter of Genesis. They will reproduce after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. And if God says something ten times, it must be important. One time is enough for me. God wants us to know, dear friends, that we began supernaturally not as chance products of the blind forces of nature through vast periods of time. But God created us supernaturally with a purpose to glorify him and a destiny that will never end, even beyond the grave. 
And we're responsible to God for the way we live and think and speak. And if we're nothing but animals, there is no such standard or goal or purpose. That is why the theory of evolution has been eagerly absorbed and utilized by communist Russia and communist China. This is why Adolf Hitler used Darwinian evolution through the teachings of the German philosopher Nietzsche, namely, might makes right. There is no God, and only those who have the power to crush others will survive. It makes all the difference in the world what you know about where you came from. It will spell all the difference in the world for young people today in America to know that God created them, that they are not animals or beasts, and that God himself began this world by miracle and holds it together by the infinite power of his spoken word. Did you know that evolutionists today, here and there around the world, in the higher echelons of original investigation at least, are admitting the fact that they have no basis whatsoever for supporting their theory. Let me quote one by the name of Professor D.M.S. Watson of the University of London who wrote, Evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur or can be proved by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. The only reason why leading evolutionists cling to their theory is not because the facts of nature demand it, but because the only alternative is unthinkable, namely that God created the world. Why is this unthinkable? Because the human heart in its sin will not come to God. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Did you know that this controversy between Genesis and evolution is ultimately a spiritual one? That's right. Men will do anything to hide from God, whatever the theory may be. And the lesson we may learn, dear friends, is simply this. If God has truly spoken to our hearts, whatever the theories of men may demand, we want God's word to be our guide into all truth, for his word stands forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but the Lord Jesus assured us his word will never fail. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.